I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Lucy Horton. Lucy is a 72-year-old hippie, activist, and entrepreneur. I met Lucy through an attending physician, Dr. DeHoff, at the Lehigh Valley Physician Practice, and I am glad to bring her perspective to the podcast. During this conversation, we discuss her cross-country ramblings as a young hippie, her 15 years on a commune in Vermont with 18 other people, joining an Episcopal church because she wanted to attend school on Sundays, and serving as a volunteer escort for women's health clinics. Before we talk a little bit more about Lucy, I want to talk about my long-form Sundays post because this conversation with Lucy is awesome. You're really going to look for. I hope you're looking forward to it. You should be looking forward to it. The last week I wrote on relaxing and reflection on relaxing reflection and reunion, uh, published on August 28th, 2017. Uh, this week I quickly reflect on my journey to New Hampshire for a bachelor party. I look forward to both the end of internal medicine and the approaching fall weather. One obstacle remains the shelf exam. And then the week before that I published on nights. I was on August 20th, 2017. This week I reflect on the night shift. This week gifted me free time in exchange for challenges to my partnership. Overall, I feel like I ended up on top and am ready for the end of internal medicine. And these posts, uh, they've been, I've been working on them since the first anatomy lab of medical school. And I've been, just been reflecting on uh, the experiences of medical school, school of social life, of, of personal life, of everything. Uh, every week, every Sunday, uh, since that very first anatomy lab. And you can find those at mnmwod.com. That's mobility and mindfulness work of the day, mnmwod.com. And you can uh, go to mnmwod.com slash physician for a very good, easy um, layout of all the things. And you can find the Amazon links for the books, both available on Kindle and in paperback uh, there for year one and year two. I'm working on year three right now. And uh, you can find also all of the On Death podcasts there as well. So, Lucy is an old hippie, entrepreneurial, a singer, and a cook. Before Lucy dies, she wants recreational marijuana to be legalized everywhere. When Lucy dies, she wants to donate her body to science. After Lucy dies, she wants to leave a legacy endowment and to have a fun memorial service. Finally, in conclusion, Lucy says, don't be like me. But do gain as many basic physical skills as you can. Things you can do with your hands. Things you can make. And what a, what a great last note to end on. Lucy, uh, she's uh, the wife of an attending physician, Dr. DeHoff, as I mentioned earlier. She's, uh, she's what I'm so glad about having her on the podcast for. She's on the uh, other end of the age spectrum compared to a lot of my guests. A lot of the guests tend to be in the 20 to 30 range. Um, a lot of them are students uh, or professionals, and so it's a very specific slice of life that you're getting. Um, and Lucy, she's lived a, she's lived one heck of a life. Like the 15 years of the, of the commune is such an interesting experience to talk about. Um, like, what was it like having to slaughter your own animals? What was it like uh, with you know people coming in and out of that commune? What were the 60s like? Like, what was that? It was crazy. Um, and we and we dig into a lot of that. We dig into uh, her political leanings and her her um, what she hopes to see in the future and the th- the work she's doing now to realize that vision of the future. 
um, she's been working with um, as an escort for uh, women's health clinics and for abortion clinics and the, the, the tough emotions that it can bring up for both people on side on both sides of that issue and her, her desire to help people through that experience is very admirable. And we talk a little bit about uh, her, or what it was like growing up, her, her, what, what brought, what brought her to be a hippie, uh, growing up in the rural area and then going to New York city and then leaving that, that city life kind of sort of, it, it's something that resonates very strongly with me because that was, as I mentioned, in, when I interview her, that's sort of my story as well. I lived, grew up in New Hampshire. I went to Boston for school and I worked there and then I left. And then when I came back to a city, I was like, this place is crazy. It's not for me. And now I live in nice rural, semi-rural Coopersburg for that reason. So maybe I'm like a modern hippie. Who knows? Anyway, you can, uh, I hope you're looking forward to this podcast. It's a really good one. She is a delight to talk to. And, uh, I wish I could have had a couple more sessions with her, you know, cause, uh, 90 minutes talking with a 20 year old is usually about tapping out on all the things that they can talk about. Uh, but for her, you, you can just hear, I, 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 I just listened to this podcast again, this interview again, and I could hear all of these other rabbit holes that I wanted to go down, but it's tough when you have, when you want to be respectful of a person's time and you want to be, you know, there's only so much stamina you have for a single conversation. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm noodling on it. Maybe with some of these older folks, I'll break it up into two sessions, like the first two prompts I am and before, and then break maybe an hour, maybe a couple days. And then we come back for when and after, after they die. So uh, we'll see. I'm going to play around with it because I haven't really experimented a whole lot with the uh, formatting of the podcast. And I think it's about time to start uh, growing some wings a little bit, trying some new things. Regardless, I hope you've, um, you know, started to zone out while I ramble on because you, uh, you know, you start getting the water ready, start to uh, get your, your food ready, whatever you do, however you like to listen to these podcasts, however you like to listen to these interviews, uh, get ready for this one because Lucy Horton is a pleasure. So uh, get ready for her thoughts on death. It is August 15th, we think, uh, 2017. I'm sitting here in Lucy's beautiful home in Allentown, and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Lucy, what are the four prompts? I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, after I die, I want. Excellent. And how do you finish that first prompt, I am? I am. Well, I'm an old hippie. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean to be an old hippie? Well, I went to a good... You know, good schools, uh, good college, appreciated my education, didn't really want to continue on in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my parents, we had moved to New York City when I was 13, mm-hmm. which I found a very hostile environment, very, mm-hmm. yeah, very hard-edged. And, and, and it was a much worse place in those days. I mean, it was filthy. People didn't pick up after their dogs, so there was dog turds everywhere it the air was worse mm-hmm. you know i mean things have improved there a lot uh but the i got groped on the subway i um you just if you put anything down turn around you look back it's gone i mean just a negative urban environment i, I mean i had many positive experiences as well but it was basically negative mm-hmm. and i did live there after college and Worked first as a teacher in the 
South Bronx, which was interesting but really difficult. I imagine. Dropped out of that, and I worked as a waitress in a very interesting place called Max's Kansas City, which was sort of an artist and musician's hangout. But um, that, and that was very much of a learning experience. But I, um, well, um, went out west with a friend of mine who was a, another waitress. We we quit the job and we went out to Oregon and we, uh, and I didn't drive, but we bought a car. She did all the driving and we drove all over Oregon for three weeks. Oh, and wow. when I came back, I just couldn't stand it in the city. I had a little apartment. Mm-hmm. I had a sublet. I never had a lease, but I had a sublet. This is a big thing. Mm-hmm. But rent controlled apartments in New York, I could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> rent controlled apartments. In, I mean, it was like six, you know, $80 a month, but I didn't have the lease. So um, I went up to see some friends who were, oh, well, some friends of mine uh, had moved out to California and they wanted me to come out there and live with them. But I went up to see some friends in Vermont mm-hmm. and who had left the urban scene and were living on a small piece of land in northern Vermont. And I, I just loved it there so much that I, I wanted to stay and I was able to make that happen. And uh, I uh, raised some money by... Well, I had a great adventure. The, the people I lived with, Robert and Mary Hurrier, I used to babysit for their daughter. They lived in New York City um, at one earlier on, and I worked for Mary as a babysitter for two summers when I was in college. And um, Robert was a journalist, and he became something of a dropout, and he wrote a book called Getting Back Together. He spent a year traveling around visiting communes all over the country. Mm. It's a very interesting book. It's not in print anymore, but I think it's probably on a lot of reading lists Mm -hmm. because people are interested in studying intentional communities. Mm -hmm. So he came up with the idea that I should write a commune cookbook. A commune, let me put it Uh that differently, a commune cookbook. And (laughs) so at first the idea seemed far-fetched, but then I began to really think it was viable and I found I went back to New York found a temporary job saved up some money and then I hitchhiked I I didn't start out hitchhiking I flew to Chicago where I was hoping I could get a ride through a ride board but it didn't look feasible and you could fly in those days um, they had student rates mm-hmm. and they were one way they were much lower. You didn't get any food. Everyone else had food. And, but, yeah, there were things then that, you know, made flying actually kind of e- easier than it is now. And uh, so I flew out to Denver where I had recently met someone who lived in Boulder and I, who said I could stay at his place. So I, this, I went to the baggage checkout at the airport and... Um, I did something, someone had suggested I do this. I looked around, I saw this big, muscular, outdoorsy-looking guy, and I said, are you, are you going to Boulder <laughs> by any chance? He said, yes. I said, would you give me a ride? So he did. And uh, so then I went down to a spot in Boulder where you, and there had been riots in Boulder, and actually a bank had been smashed. Oh, wow. There were, yeah, there was violence. What year was this? This was 1971. Mm. It would have been June. And uh, 
So I, but I went down to a designated spot and I put up a sign that said California. And within minutes, I had arrived. <laughs> a bunch of hairy hippies in a yeah. Volkswagen van all the way to California. Oh, wow. I don't know. I, at any rate, it went on from there. It was a very eye-opening trip up and down the West Coast to New Mexico, mm-hmm. back to the Middle West. Up, and then I picked up a traveling companion and went up north into, um, through the upper Midwest into Canada, back across Canada and down into Vermont. Oh, and then wow. later on I did a circuit around New England mm. and did get the book published. It didn't oh. sell. But, you did it. But I did it. I got mm. an advance mm. and um, was able to buy into the commune. So... Uh, there's a lot there. We'll work together on unpacking yeah. it a little bit. Right. So, so uh, from the story that you told me, um, I mean, at first you're 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 an old hippie. Yeah. What? Oh, the, and when was was when you went out to Oregon and then went back to the city and realized this city is not for me. Yeah. Was that sort of your like first moment as a young hippie? I yeah, I didn't even think of myself that way. But yes, I just I I just thought I can't do this. I can't live here. Like this. And then there were people I knew who they had gone to college and they'd gone to grad school and and they, but they were you get stuck in New York mm-hmm. if you get a nice apartment you are stuck you know, because you if you ever give it up you can't ever get it back mm-hmm. so people got stuck there plus there's a whole there was a whole mindset New York is the greatest place in the world it's got uh, well the everyone was completely addicted to cinema mm-hmm. everyone was addicted to it. People went to the movie multiple times a week. They saw all the foreign films and all the art cinema, you know, and people were just addicted to this, and they thought this was a life. And people would say, how can you leave New York? But what will you, you know, where will you go to watch movies? And, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they just, people were so addicted to New York, and I just felt like it was this horrible trap, and I just had to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that uh like there, I, I resonate very strongly with that. Like there, I lived uh, after I graduated from college. I went to school at Tufts University outside of Boston, like yeah. very close and oh, yeah, uh, lovely, exactly. lovely campus. Um, and then I, I worked and lived in Boston and like Southie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was like you know I was like in my young twenties, so it was like the perfect time to be in the city, sort of thing. And then I went up to New Hampshire um, after wor- after working living in Boston for about two years. I went up to New Hampshire to uh, take the MCAT, the the medical school prep uh, exam, mm-hmm. and the and like apply to medical schools and do the whole application process. And during that time, I it seemed very similar to like you going out to Oregon, where I when I went back into cities, I was just like, this place is crazy. Like yeah, this, it's right. madness here. Like at <laughs> one, once you get into it and then leave it and then come back, you sort of like lose the like the hypnosis of the city yeah and it's a very i'm just like man people are weird here like i don't know if they understand how weird they are because everyone's really weird in the same yeah. way <laughs> but, you do get it yes this is what it was like and you're like kind of like seeing past like the stage hypnosis and it's very bizarre and uh it's it's like i don't know um I don't know what it is about cities, but it's like I, some people are drawn to it. My sister, she she went to NYU for college and then never left the city. That's just it. Yeah, this happens. Yeah, and uh, and and and, 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 then, and further, like you going on this giant like a meandering road trip. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's such a love like that's uh, something that's so not like when I I went on a road trip over the past like last summer and it was I feel like it's such a different beast because like it's such a like a highway base and there's yeah. you know you're going to a destination you're not really going on a journey and it sounds like your 
um, road trip across this country was like one of like a, a true journey. Like you're yeah, kind of like going around. Yeah. You're just like, I'd get the name of a place and I'd get there and then I'd get names of more places. And then you just kind of bop yeah. around. Yeah. And it's sort of like it's almost like uh, when uh, modern folks they they go backpacking. Like it's, it's but you did it in the country. Like yeah. And, and such a yeah, it was risky, wide-ended. but it didn't seem risky at the time. I wouldn't you know advise anyone else to try this. <laughs> <laughs> no. But anyway, I did it and lived. Mm-hmm. But okay, so then lived, made a life on this commune where it was a very interesting place. I lived there for 15 years. Had worked up a small business doing crochet. I had some designs for fitted vests and, and I got into dyeing the yarns. Mm-hmm. Did that for a number of years. But when I met Howard... Um, he was, yeah, he was just, we were just buddies. He, he, he lived at the farm for two years, as I say, as a member of the band. And there was a barn. He lived in a basically an unheated room. It had a little heater, I think. Mm-hmm. The place was a fire trap. It's amazing it never burned down. Uh, but he would go, you know, be like, you know, 30 below. They'd be, come back at two in the morning from when they play bars and places mm-hmm. all over the area. And, uh, I don't know how he did it because he's very, he loves warmth. But he was just, you know, when you're young, it was an adventure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, he embraced it. But then he left, but he always stayed in touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then later on, I knew him for 14 years before we became close. What year did you first meet him? And I met him, I think, in 74. It was mm-hmm. before he came to the farm. But he was he had friends who had moved to the area. Mm. And... Yeah, but he had long hair, beautiful, beautiful hair. It was a waste of beautiful I'm hair. Sure, on like sky. Samson, just yeah. the strength. Yes, <laughs> yeah. blonde curls. Oh, wow. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. It was so cute. Um, what was, what was, I mean, it, I know it's going to be difficult to summarize in any meaningful way, but what was the 15 years in the commune like? Oh, it was, um, it, it was very interesting. The, uh, it, the place had some terrific people basic people and we didn't really have rules but most people didn't want to be there you'd come you just you had to work a lot Mm -hmm. and it was pretty primitive that we did manage to upgrade slowly over the years but i wouldn't do it again for that reason but it was such a beautiful place everyone there just loved being in that beautiful valley in northern vermont Mm -hmm. and uh building a sense of community and, and you mentioned earlier, uh, like the the difficulties of of creating an intentional community. Yeah. Like, what were some of the like uh, challenges of that commune, and like what uh, what were the what were the guiding principles for the commune? Yeah, we never um, we never put down, never had a charter. There was no membership requirement. There were a few people that had put in money, and at the end, when the thing finally kind of dissolved, five people ended up. Uh, sharing in the proceeds of, of which I got a certain amount but there were others who'd put in more but uh, and then there were many people who had lived there and you know been hard working but they had never put in you know this basic money so they didn't get the money back but nobody was expecting to or wanted to mm-hmm. and uh, it was just a life path thing it, there was it was very spiritual uh, but we found if we ever tried to talk about it it didn't work for us I had went to England at one point, traveled around, stayed in some communities. They were much more organized, and they would have meetings. And I came back from England, and I said, we should have a meeting. And we 
we did. We sat. We were going to, you know, try to share. It was felt so artificial. Mm. But then it turned out two of the men there <laughs> looked at each other and said, you know, we've never had a conversation the whole time. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. It's tough, but, especially like midstream to create that, those, like, those kinds of uh, those ceremonies yeah. or rituals of like sitting down and doing yeah. stuff. It's like if you do it midstream, it's really tough. It's, yes, it's easier exactly. if you do it from the very beginning. Yes, but we just were not organized that way. Mm. It was really by feel. And we only had a couple of rules, no tobacco and no dogs, because dogs <laughs> are a real problem on yeah. a commune. Yeah, why is that? Well, they, uh, in, in those days, people let the dogs run. They, there were no leash laws, mm-hmm. and uh, dogs can get into a lot of trouble doing that. They, they, they run down and kill deer. They kill chickens. Mm-hmm. Um, and the communes that had dogs, Robert saw this when he traveled, they... People would leave the commune and leave the dog behind, and pretty soon you have a dog pack. Oh, and, yeah, dogs are you like know. they get pretty feral pretty fast. Yeah, they yeah. do, and and uh, that that human yeah. that human dog relationship is one that needs to be like bear, like in the same way like a commune needs to like have those rules in the beginning. You need to like really man like if you get some like kind of feral dogs or like even dogs in that kind of very primitive uh, landscape, you need to like manage them. Like, oh yeah, you, you can't you, just like children. You can't just let them do everything on their own you gotta like uh-huh. you gotta like have a relationship there otherwise they're gonna figure out their own rules right? exactly uh, we had very few children at the farm mm-hmm. um there mary matthias the one the um, my dear friend uh who was she and her husband were the founders but they split up and robert left mm-hmm. but mary stayed the whole time um they she had two children, one of whom went to live with her grandmother because she just found the whole thing too primitive. But the other one, a little David, he was the only child that grew up there. There was another woman there, Sue, who had left a very unhappy marriage. She had three children. Mm-hmm. Her She went to court trying to get... Uh, well, she wanted them to live with us to go to school, and he fought her and won in court because mm-hmm. she had left him. But the schools were not good, I think... It, it's probably better that they stayed where they were because it was a better school district in, in central Vermont. But any rate, she, that, but they would come and spend summers with us. There were a number of children that did that, but mm-hmm. there was only one full-time child. Now, other communities had many more children, mm-hmm. and then there were problems associated with that. I think, in a way, it's one reason why we were so cohesive is... Um, because, oh, there's so many issues with children. So many. You're not there. You know, to a child in a collective situation, you're not the parent. Uh, only the parent really gets to set the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but the children do tend to bond. Our friends, other friends who lived up there, and very unconventionally, their children have turned out terrific. They've gone to Ivy League schools. Mm-hmm. They have... They have professions. <laughs> it's just amazing to me how well those children have turned out. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it, like it was an experiment that succeeded, but nobody <laughs> knew at the time. Mm-hmm. And the local schools were not good, so the parents really had to do a lot of teaching. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. David wasn't that much of a student. He's so dear, though. And he's now an adult and still lives in Vermont, has children of his own. But uh, any rate, so... There's a wonderful book that was published in the last year called We Are as Gods, and it's by a young woman. I can't think of her name right now, but she, I, she, her parents, I, I think I'd met. They, this was another community that was about 40, well, 
it may not have been as much as 40 miles away from us, but it was far away enough that it was like a slightly different sphere, mm-hmm. but it was very similar. Mm-hmm. And she tells the whole story of this place. She calls It was called Mullen Hill. She calls it Myrtle Hill in the book. But uh, I knew some of the people, but the whole thing was very, very familiar to me. So I just read that with complete fascination. <laughs> I'm sure. And yeah. how many people were in, I know, imagine it varied in Wax and Wayne, but uh, what would you say, like, uh, over the 15 years, how many people were there? At, in okay, the at the height, there were 18. At Then it began to dwindle and got down fewer and fewer. Uh, there was a dairy farm there, so there were people that were doing that. There were Jersey cows, but mm-hmm. uh, it got, yeah, it began to dwindle, and then... At the end, everyone basically all we never broke up. They just just people decided they wanted to do other things, mm-hmm. and so it got down to very few. And then it got down to me. I lived there alone <laughs> for a couple of months. I'd already decided to move to Norfolk, but mm-hmm. we had to sell the place and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the logistics uh, of yeah, land. But I actually, and then I went down to see Howard in Norfolk, and there was nobody there, and we had cats. They were. Uh, Mary was supposed to come up. Well, they weren't in the house. They were, they well, feral. well, they weren't feral, but they were very domestic. But they lived in the house in the barn, mm-hmm. so I didn't leave any cats shut up in the house. But um, she said she'd come over and feed them, and she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> they they survived. I'm sure cats but, didn't I, do I took, that. Yeah, and I took one of them with me when I left Vermont. We mm-hmm. found homes for all of them. But any rate, um, yeah, with eighteen with eighteen folks, it's uh, I imagine it's. Because there's like, have you heard of Dunbar's number? No, what's that? It's like the like with like correlate. It's like correlated to like your your frontal cortex. Like the like different animals have different uh, sizes of their frontal cortex, and they have different uh, numbers of of groups that they associate with. So mm-hmm. like smaller animals will will have smaller packs, and like dogs will have larger packs, ah. and like humans they have a large frontal cortex, but there there is a limit to yeah. their natural association groups. And That's it, and it's it's about like how many relationships can you keep track of. Uh-huh. So uh, for humans it's approximately one hundred and fifty relationships. Ah. So so when you're talking about a you can so like there someone studied that. Yeah wow. it's very some dude named Dunbar. And it's a very interesting idea. It's so it's like, you know, uh, and it's sort of why military um, organization sizes have stayed, stayed so consistent from like the Roman legions to the uh, like United States Marine Corps. Like there's the the fire team, there's the squad, there's the platoon, and then there's, you know, like the company. So mm-hmm. so there's like, you know, with, with like your squad, you have like 12 to 15 people and you're very intimate with those people. You know how does Steve like Carl and how does Carl like Steve and like how does, how does Steve like me, like all of those all of those relationships you can keep really good track of. Mm-hmm. And when you get up to like the platoon size, let's say 50 people, it, it's a little bit harder. You might kind of know some things, yeah. but like it's harder to keep track of. And it sounds like your your commune was in that like kind of squad size. Yeah, like that, it was like, squad size. Yeah, yeah. and you, you mm-hmm. but you knew everybody and you kind of knew yeah. all of the things. But if you were like add 30 more people in there, it would change the dynamics yes. entirely. And you kind yeah, of have so to have these been... like little smaller like groups that would associate yeah. broaderly, uh, more broadly. But it's... um. But it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, at what point can you sustain children? And is is it the squad size? Is it the platoon size when you're talking about like fifty people, hundred and fifty people when you're talking about a company? Like uh what like what is like the, the minimum number of relationships necessary to to properly develop a growing brain it's like that's yeah. and it's like you know because yeah like you said you're not the you're not the parent if you're not the parent uh but if you create those rules and if you have those um if you have like an organization that 
has a very strong intention towards child rearing. Uh, but like how many people do you need? Because you need some people to carry water. You need some people to, to scoop the poop, you know, like all those things. It's a very, it's a, those logistics. You need like a certain number of bodies and a certain yeah. number of man hours to like maintain. I don't so know. So true. Very. Well, we were squad size. That's very good. That's interesting. Yeah. So we were, you know, at, at our happiest when we were squad size, but I traveled a lot. I was able to leave. I didn't, take responsibility. There were none of the farm animals that I had responsibility for. Mm-hmm. Although at one point people wanted me to, so I, that we had a pig and I would feed it. <laughs> oh, there were two pigs. I would feed them. Lady pigs or dude pigs? I forget what they were, but they were, boy, did they, they, they pigs are really strange. They, they, they like to fight over food. Oh, really? Oh, that's what, their thing. What do pigs fighting look like? Oh, they're just snorting and they're, they're, Sort of like cats, like kind of like very, like very like. uh, No, it's more like they're pushing each other. Oh, really? Shoving each other to get to the food, and like with their face, or like with their butt, or like their their whole sides. Their whole sides. Oh, kind of like like side. And they've got these filthy. I mean, they just create (laughs) filth, and they just lie around. Yeah, pigs. But they're smart. They're That's what smart. I hear. They're like way. They're like on the level of dogs. Like they're, they're very they're, smart. They're quite like astute. Yeah, surprisingly. So. Yes, they are. But at any rate, we and that was I was not around when they got slaughtered. But mm. um, that was not a people didn't really like it, and so they quit. Didn't we didn't have pigs again? Oh, that's an yeah, unfortunate thing. People there were up for doing things like slaughtering animals, but they was so unpleasant when it actually happened. Uh, and that's that's such a tough thing, especially when you're talking about yeah. a commune and you're yeah. living very primitively. It's like you have to be tuned into that the end yeah. of life. You have to be able to to do that. Otherwise, it's like what do you like? Like that. That's like part of or at least for me. Like that is part of why you dissociate from the civilization is you get to experience all parts of the life cycle, uh, all of the cool parts, and all of the like the not so glamorous, like pooping into a yeah. bucket so you can make compost out of it. Like yeah. that's important. And uh, and being able to slaughter an animal with respect and love is like. Is one yes. that you raised with love too. Yeah, Mary was able to do that. But anyway, so yeah, so those were very um, interesting years. Mm. Uh, but I certainly didn't build a resume. <laughs> 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 and then when I left, it was yeah, well, there was a lot of readjustment necessary. But oh, I'm sure. Mo- moving down to Norfolk when uh, Howard was he was thirty eight when he started med school, and we lived in a very simple apartment. It was a four story walk up and. <laughs> uh, it was it, it was nice though I you know I really uh, I ended up liking everywhere we lived I um, I started a photography business mm-hmm. um, I used some of the money I got when we sold the farm I paid a guy fifty dollars to just give me a tutorial he helped me buy equipment and then I just went out and start well I took a lot of pictures of people um, for practice and then I just started marketing myself and had some success. Uh, did it when we moved to Rochester, but um, didn't. Uh, and the, it was really odd. I got into a real niche thing, I, uh, which is very odd for me. I don't wear makeup or anything, but I worked with Mary Kay groups, who uh-huh. are actually very nice. They're very <laughs> supportive. Um, and I did before and after photos. I got into oh. glamour photography. Yeah, I had a whole rig. I had... Portable lights. I got backdrops. I got fuzz filters. I got <laughs> I got things for the women to wear, like like uh, boa, you know, sort of fake feather boas and mm-hmm. and um, drapey materials and a cowboy hat and <laughs> a biker look. And they would, you know, get a makeover, and then I would take these. <laughs> Actually, they 
they were some of those were quite beautiful, but this wasn't when we moved to Pittsburgh. It wasn't something I wanted to try to keep doing. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, at that time, photography was becoming digital, which is a whole different set of skills. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I stopped doing that. And then after an interim period, I found this book selling business, which has been was quite successful for a while. It has slowed down. I think there's many digitalization is one, but mm-hmm. I think there's other factors. But they, you know, the books used to just be red hot. My God, you'd list them at night, you'd be sold in the morning. <laughs> but, so it's not like that. But I don't want to work that hard anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you are an old hippie. Yeah. What okay. else? And I've yeah. So I've always been entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. You you are yeah. all, what a. I mean, we've talked a lot about that. Like your, uh, we talked we, before the interview. We talked about your book selling business, yeah, um, and and the Mary Kay stuff. Is is that uh, that was funny? Yeah, is what Those about women were really nice? Yeah, they were. Oh, they're very warm. They're very you know supportive of each other. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose the products are good. I don't know because I don't use them. They <laughs> did teach me about moisturizing, which is the one thing that I've I really wasn't doing, and now I always do just some kind of skin cream to keep your skin from getting all too dry. dry. Yeah, yeah. Especially up here in the winter, I imagine it's a whole thing. Uh, what, uh, what it was, what part of you is like, was drawn to like the entrepreneurial kind of like, let's do my own thing. Yeah. Like, let's find my own niche. Well, okay. My, to go back to my family background, which we haven't discussed, mm-hmm. it was an unusual background. Um, my father was a sociology professor mm-hmm. and very left wing. And as was my mother, and my mother was a book restorer. She mm-hmm. she took it to a very high level. She had a for in the sixties through the early eighties. She had a very successful studio in New York City and worked on really top level stuff. She had a staff. They were in the house. My parent. Well, um, okay. As a child, um, I was born in Westchester County, but my family moved to Chicago when I was very small and my father was like he was a professor at the University of Chicago but he didn't get tenure mm-hmm. and um, and I've read about it there was actually a book was written about this period the the department they were all very left-wing these sociologists Mm -hmm. and then the department got a i don't know a new chair maybe there was a new president but they purged the department and Mm. um and these interesting people dispersed all over the country including a man named ansem strauss who was a pioneer of studying the doctor-patient relationship and that was one of my father's best friends but anyway my father needed to find a job it must have been, I was about, I guess I was 13. I knew, didn't know anything about this. Um, they must have really gone through a lot, but they kept it. My, I have a brother, and they kept it from us. And so one day, they, I was going to a summer school program at the University of Chicago, although I went to public school. But they would let you know I would enroll us in the summer enrichment program, mm-hmm. and I came home one day, and my parents were sitting there, and they said, "We have something to tell you. We're moving to New York City." <laughs> I just burst into tears. I mean, I had, you know my whole happy little childhood life, and, mm. uh, and how old were you? I was thirteen, mm-hmm. and 
So we did. They did it with great efficiency within two months. We oh, had wow. packed up. They found a place mm-hmm. in New York City. They lucked into a house. It was in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And Chelsea was not fashionable at those in those days. It was actually kind of slummy. The street where they found the house had a lot of the houses. They were all basically 19th century, but a lot of them had been broken up into single occupancy. And mm-hmm. they were whole families living in one room. Mm-hmm. and um, children all over the street, and a very strange environment. It later got all cleaned up, and uh, now it's considered a real gem of a neighborhood, but it was not at that time. <laughs> but they did get a house. They rented it. In what year? 1958, and mm-hmm. they were later able to buy it, mm-hmm. oh, which wow. was great. Mm-hmm. And um, so... and. My mother always had a studio in it, and she it later, ultimately, the studio took over half the house. So <laughs> there were always, when I, it was funny, when I lived up in the commune and I'd come down to New York to see my parents, there were people all over the house. It was mostly women that worked for her that were book restorers, and, but they were in and out, and there was really no privacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my parents they seemed happy with this, and uh, yeah, it was very interesting, but they had a Call to service. This is how I was brought up. Yeah? Yeah. Did you have a religious or spiritual upbringing in your childhood? Um, my parents were not religious. They, in fact, had were both outspoken atheists. Mm-hmm. However, I wanted to go to, to church because I loved school. And once I found out there was <laughs> Sunday school, I thought, wow, I could go to school another day. <laughs> so they found a church. And my brother wanted to, too. So they found mm-hmm. a church. It was mm-hmm. nearby. It was walking distance. It was a, an Episcopal church. And where were you at this point? In Chicago. Okay. In Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. And um, my father had been brought up Episcopal, but it, it's a, that's a very easygoing denomination. Mm-hmm. They It's like Catholic light. They, <laughs> they don't scare the children. They're into the whole story Never aspect and the rituals, but they mm-hmm. don't scare the children. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about hell. They don't, you know, they. it's very benign. And mm-hmm. so that was a good choice. And so Chris and I became very uh, ac- active members and it was good because we got some Bible instruction, and uh, and my parents actually approved of that. I remember my father saying, if you don't understand Christianity, you will never understand Western art, music, mm-hmm. history. You know, you'll never be able to really appreciate the scope of Western history because it's Christianity so much at the basis of it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but, and they were very supportive, and they would even come to church when... There was on Mother's Day and Father's Day, there was a tradition you were supposed to invite your parents. Yeah, they were really good about it. My brother would argue with my my father because my brother got more into it than I was, and he thought my father was going to go to hell when he died. And they would argue. Is he a younger or older brother? He's older. Oh, I see. But he, um, any rate, we both, when we moved to New York, we both got over it. It didn't <laughs> even, wasn't even an issue. I didn't, it didn't even, I never was, I didn't even think about it. It was so confusing to move to New York, and mm-hmm. and then finally, after we'd been there for a couple of months, my father said, well, I guess it's time to find another church for you, mm-hmm. and my brother and I both had, without ever discussing it, had it had just gone away, mm-hmm. and uh, so, but I'm really glad I had that experience, Yeah, and, and it was a credit to my parents that they handled it really well. Mm-hmm. They didn't fight you, they no. were like, no, you're not going to do that. Nope. 
No, they were supportive. Huh. But so that was a. I'm really uh, pleased about that. Mm-hmm. And I would I'd recommend it to anyone that had children that if their children want to experience religion, find a nice church, like a mainstream Protestant church, and that, that will just be a positive experience. Mm-hmm. And what is. Uh, what is your relationship now to uh, either Christianity or spirituality? Because you did mention that the commune experience was a spiritual experience. Uh, yeah. And what, what well, is it now? Spirituality for me, it's something where I find it I find it in different places, but I don't seek it. A lot of people I know, uh, many people I know, need to have a defined spiritual path. Mm-hmm. Many, many people I know. And for most of my friends, it's not Christianity, um, although one close friend it is. Um, she's very low key about it, but uh, for others, it might be uh, mindfulness meditation, yoga. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, some people I know up there in Vermont got involved in Sufism, which is actually a form of Islam. But it's a mm-hmm. mystical form. Oh, Suf- yeah, Sufism, right? Yeah, Sufism. Suf- okay, and and uh, it involves dancing, and I don't know what all, but they there was a whole group that gravitated to that. Yeah, but I myself don't need a spiritual practice. I do find great sustenance in nature, and uh, Mm -hmm. I do think that the national parks and monuments are very, very key places. Mm -hmm. Among the other abominations of this current regime are their disrespect for these. In fact, there's someone that comes to Tuesdays with Timmy every week, a really sweet man. He comes all the way over from Shoemakersville, which is pretty far drive it's over by the Schuylkill River mm-hmm. and he's just a sweet man and he goes to all, he goes around to national parks and monuments a lot and he when we we arranged a small group meeting with Charlie Dent our congressman and he uh and that's was was his issue that they're trying to chip away at these places uh and you know just to open up the land for uh you know drilling mm-hmm. and what a bad mistake that would be just no respect Mm-hmm. No respect. For- yeah, the, it's a very unfortunate thing where we have to mm-hmm. um, assign a like a, a monetary value to a place for it to be valuable. Otherwise, it's like, well, they're sold this oil, yeah. we might as well grab it. Yeah, and it's it's like there's there there are there's value that is independent of of uh, like dollar signs. Yes, and it's a it's a very tough thing because as soon as you like take like lower those borders, then it's just like development and. And like the suburbs and and whatever will come mm-hmm. in, and uh, it's not going to leave once it enters yeah. the place. It doesn't. It you've never yeah, unless they abandon the place. It's like it never they yeah. never see it back. I do think that people have an innate need to connect to nature. I agree. And, and when you go to places, uh, you'll see all kinds of just very average looking people. Um, it's that feel that it's very widespread. Mm-hmm. Um, people of all walks of life. Uh, and environmental issues are one thing that I think have the potential to uh, draw people together, but uh, that hasn't been what I've been involved in. My thing I've been most involved in is reproductive rights. I've done mm-hmm. much, much, much work with that. Um, I've been a clinic escort. Uh, I, for six years after I moved here, I was a clinic escort at the Allentown Women's Center several mornings a week. Mm-hmm. And what uh, what drew you to that work? Because it is very it's very polarizing. People yeah. have very strong emotions yeah. around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what draws you to that, like crucible? Uh, just uh, uh, my strong conviction that if women don't have the right to control their own 
reproduction, then they they have no rights. Mm-hmm. It, that's you can give them any other right, but if you don't have that right, then you're not an autonomous being. Mm-hmm. And um, and back when I moved to Norfolk, that was in a very crazy period uh, of. There was a guy named Randall Terry, and it's interesting. Oddly, when I moved to Rochester, Randall Terry is from that area. But this, there were just wars going on at clinics, and there'd be hundreds of protesters trying to shut the clinics down, mm. and they'd crawl all over the ground, and they'd just carry on. And that, this was happening in Norfolk. There were people um, that there was one clinic. They couldn't really target it because it was in an office building, but they would get out in the street and try. And <clears throat> some of these people, they would talk in tongues, which is interesting. I've, re- I've read about it, but there were people actually doing it. They, they get, you know, I don't know, no one really understands what it is, but they start babbling, and it sounds like words, but it's not. Mm-hmm. But they would get into this fervor state and talk in tongues. But, you know, it's just fine. That's fine, you know, do whatever. But <laughs> just don't try to... Tell other people what to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, since I left Vermont, I did active work in Norfolk. I did it in Rochester, very much so in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, where I had a found, got into a fascinating, fascinating volunteer work where um, Pennsylvania has a parental consent law. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're under 18, you have to have a parent's consent to have an abortion. However, if you do not, for one reason or another, feel you can go to your parent, mm-hmm. you can go to court. Oh, interesting. And, yes. And in Pittsburgh, they had a wonderful setup that was extremely compassionate, where if a young woman, well, the clinic where I volunteered would, would send, um, they were sending clinic employees with these girls, but when they found out I would do it for free, they were ecstatic. So uh, the other clinics would just give the girl the information, and she'd have to do this on her own. Mm-hmm. But when she got to the courthouse, it was the family court, she'd be met by a social worker, and then she there were volunteer lawyers that were doing pro bono. Oh, they wow. would, it, she'd have an interview with a lawyer. The lawyer would go into court with her. It was a very brief hearing, and... There were pro-choice judges. I am happy to say they are on the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court now. Mm. Three of the pro-choice judges, there was in 2014 when there was a big Tea Party wave in Pennsylvania, three Democrats were elected to three open seats on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and all three of them were people that uh, used to help us out. That would oh, we'd wow. know they would all, they would never give the girl a hard time. Yep. So that's a positive for Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. But um, the so I would meet the girls at the clinic and I would drive them downtown. And I found a lot of I had schemes for parking so I wouldn't have to go into a garage. <laughs> I'd usually find a spot and then I'd have to come out and move the car again. But mm-hmm. um, I got the occasional ticket, but it was worth it. But um, the any rate, the I would first few couple of years I did that I didn't really asked the girls a lot of questions, but then I realized that they were going to be interviewed and were the judge would expect... It was possible the judge would ask them some challenging questions. The, the judges actually never did, but they could. Mm-hmm. So I would go through the whole process with the girl in the car and I would just 
really find out what her story was. And the stories were interesting. They were, these girls were very level-headed. Mostly, they, they just, for one reason or another, they couldn't tell their parents or they were afraid to. They, they, it might have been okay, but they couldn't take the chance. Mm. They had plans. These girls had plans. They were going to go to college. They were going to get a career. You know, they were very level-headed, um, by and large, mm-hmm. and very, very interesting people. Not very few of them, you know, there were a few that were, you know, pretty messed up, but most of them were just, they got themselves in trouble. A lot of them were there with their boyfriends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This happens. But they, uh, it was totally non-judgmental atmosphere. So that was a privilege. I hated giving that up when we moved here. Mm-hmm. The local clinic doesn't, uh, the hearings are after hours and they don't really need someone mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. But that was, I just got a glimpse of so many young lives. Mm-hmm. And such strong work, I love these girls. Yeah, I love these girls. So, um any rate, but here at, there was a very bad situation when we arrived here in Allentown. The clinic, there's only one clinic in the area that performs abortions. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. Planned Parenthood does, but the um, Allentown Women's Center does a second trimester. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a terrific facility. They, they were located in East Allentown. There was a parking lot, but there was an alley that you had to cross to get into the building, and the alley was a public street. Oh. And it was these awful people would just camp out there and the girls could not have gotten into the, well, the women, mostly it's women, could not have gotten into the building without someone to help them. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a long time. Oh, then the, the, for six years, and the clinic finally moved to a, a place in an office park that's out near the Bethlehem Wegmans. But they, there is a horrible man who comes and stands at the entrance to the lot and shouts awful things. And so I've had to go back now on Thursday and Friday mornings, mostly because he flags down the cars, the drivers as they're coming in, even though they're told, no, there's going to be a guy there, ignore him, they just can't. So they, And he gives them, I don't know what literature, but they, you know, they never have any success. But then he starts shouting things at them, very provocative, after they've gotten into the lot. And the big danger is he tries to get the guys that are with them to fight him. And if that happened, then it has actually happened. He presses charges against them. Mm. He's just the most obnoxious just a provocateur. Man. Yes. So it's been uh, decided, well, it, you know, just be good to have volunteers there to, to uh, keep an eye on him. Mm-hmm. So this is pretty mild, but I do have to get up early and I sit around. I mean, we've done this, women I do this with, we've done it for years, so... We just sit around and chat, but we just try to make sure that nobody goes down there and takes the bait, you know, because mm-hmm. that's what this guy wants. Mm-hmm. It's Anthony, it's what he wants, is for someone to fight him mm. so he can call the police on them. <laughs> it's really sick. <laughs> but anyway, so I do have to do that, but it's uh, not what it was. And, but we're just, none of us can believe we're still fighting this mm-hmm. after all these years. Yeah, when did you start this work? What year? Um, 87, when I moved to Norfolk. Oh, wow. Two years before I, I was born, you were, you were oh, yeah. doing the good work. Yeah, and it's mostly older people doing it. Mm. And I sometimes wonder, why am I doing this? Why can't these young people stand up for themselves? But they don't get it. You can just see they have no idea this could be. 
that's right that they think is theirs will always have um they they could lose it mm-hmm. yeah and that's, that's they wouldn't know what hit them yeah and they we don't we we're we we are born with into this situation like mm-hmm. a lot of people they're born into like a post 9-11 world and it's just like they don't under, i don't even i barely remember what life was like before 9-11 and oh, like that you know awful and it was just like that like the like the mm-hmm. the time that you're born into really kind of determines a lot of your mindset yeah. and if you are born into a world where you're like these are just expected rights that are that they're yeah. they're enforced and they're they're a part of like the culture of America and the 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 idea of like you I don't we don't understand how fragile things are like, because we're born into it we don't see how things are shaking up and this political climate like we're starting to see how fragile some of the things that we hold so like fundamental and mm-hmm. foundational are yeah so you are an old hippie oh, you hippie. are an entrepreneur. Uh-huh. Uh, what else are you? I am a singer. You're a singer. What do you what What do you like to sing? I am a student of the jazz standards. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, well, there's a large body of work. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the earliest that are in use would go back probably around 1920, and then they go up into the 60s. At which point they're pretty much um, replaced by pop, mm-hmm. which I got no issues with, but it's quite different. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful body of music that um, a lot of the songs are 32 bars and there's a lot of space there for instrumentalists so the singer alternates with the instrumentalist Mm -hmm. and um, it's a wonderful tradition I I Howard introduced me to this and I began studying it in uh, 1999 that's when I got my first serious teacher Mm -hmm. and I've studied with I have currently I, I don't really perform. I to do this, you have to be with people that are professional level, and you don't get that for free. Mm-hmm. So I actually pay three teachers <laughs> to work on repertoire with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a, that's one of those things about um, those those styles of music where it's like. You, it's hard to play classical music when you're alone. Like if, you, yeah. if you're just the bass, if you're yes. just like the bassoon player, it's like yeah. you can't really just play the bassoon. Do it's you like, play an instrument? Uh, no, I used to play uh, like the guitar a little bit, and way back when the trombone. Um, but it's it's like the, the, like with the trombone, you can't really play that alone. Like you can, yeah. but like and, and that's one thing that's so interesting yeah. about like jazz is it's like. Yeah, yeah, you can play it by yourself, but it's like it, it like you can play it to a recording. Yeah. But it's like that it lacks that like there's something very um, alive and very primal about being with people that are really really good at their craft. Yes. and that are like kind that are like challenging themselves and like working and like yes. there, there's something about that edge that is so um, in, in, enrapturing as an audience member and. And like that, you get into that like flow state as the performer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, yeah. So that I work on repertoire. Well, I've got yeah, and we go to jazz camp in the summer. Mm-hmm. Howard, oh yeah, he, he just told me about that. You went recently, right? Yeah, we go in July, and as I went, this was my eleventh year, Ooh. and we get to develop two songs and perform them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was and at this point, I met someone there. Who, who writes songs and he sends me material and, and I've now for several years I've performed music of his which is really this was such a privilege because this is basically world premiere <laughs> of the music and in fact I'll show you a photo um, the first time I did this at the camp um, the camp photographer took this photo mm-hmm. this 
it was, a, uh, let's see, this is Glenn Broadhead, my friend who writes the music, and then this is Gene Bertoncini, who is a well-known guitarist who mm -hmm. teaches there, and he had written the music. Usually, most of Glenn's songs, he wrote both the word lyrics and the music, but this time he wrote lyrics to a song of Gene's, so we, I performed it, and it was just so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really fun. But... Um, yeah, so anyway, that's a part of my life, but it kind of runs in the background. Mm -hmm. And most of my friends, I don't... Um, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of like to give a recital, but Skip said, my teacher Skip said, could you get 12 people to come? And I, I really couldn't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not planning on it. So, but it's wonderful to, to just explore this music. Mm -hmm. do, you, uh, do you have a, like a, I know you, you're talking about like the, the every July, you've been going for 11 years. Uh, what practices of, of singing do you do? Do you, do you try to sing every day? Is it yeah, I do, but it's, I'm not very good about like doing vocal exercises. Um, but I do work on songs. I'm alone a lot. Mm -hmm, so. mm -hmm. It's a different thing when yeah. you're alone. Yeah. Singing for nobody is yeah. is a very different beast first than singing for an audience or singing yeah. for a partner. It's like a different, whole different and, thing. And I have to work on, you know, because I have lessons, I want to prepare material. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, so that's a part of my life. But it's that's a uh, an avocation. So you are an old hippie, you're entrepreneurial, you are a singer. What else are you? I'm a cook. You're a cook. <laughs> the other thing is I'm a cook. Well, mm -hmm. I cook for Howard. <laughs> yeah, we never I ne we never do takeout. I make a dinner every night. Mm -hmm. What uh yeah. have you always been a cook? Did you learn from your mother? Did no. you learn from parents? Yeah. Well, my mother was a good cook and um but when we went through this terrible experience of moving to New York City when I was thirteen, she was under so much stress. And she was trying to lose weight also, mm. and she basically gave up cooking, and it was a very unfortunate time to do that. I don't know what we <laughs> ate, but at any rate, about a year later, I decided that I was going to start cooking. And so I had to... Keep talking, keep talking. I'm going to shut that door. Yeah, I guess that's our mowing service. Um, although it could be the neighbors, I mean... There's, it's all right, it's all right. there's mowing services all over, yeah. so the, you, there's hardly a time when there isn't somebody mowing around here. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so I I had some cookbooks and she taught me some things, but I just started cooking every. I'd come home from school and cook, mm. and uh, then and I've worked as a cook a little a few times, and basically when I traveled, I would pitch in in the kitchen and. If no one's interested in my advice, but if anyone was, I would say, young person, learn to cook because it is a skill that will stand you in extremely good stead. Mm -hmm. If you just go to a place and there's ingredients and you just know what to do with them um, and, and you can put them together and you can whip up a meal, it's a wonderful thing to know how to do. It's mm -hmm. really quite simple. So, But it's, I would say that's been... Um, uh, something I'm just really happy about. And then my mother got jealous because I really took over the cooking. And then, <laughs> I don't know, there was issues about that. But mm -hmm. at any rate, I moved out. And, and it's the thing about cooking, like, the, uh, like we were talking about earlier, like people, young people are losing these skills to, to be useful. And uh, cooking is one of those ways you can be useful. And if you're useful, yeah. people want you around. That's and, right. And it's nice to be... It's a very nice thing to be able to add to the mix. It is. It is. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just it's essential. Everybody's got to eat. we got to eat a couple times a day. It's, yeah. it's just nice having those skills to be able to give that back. 
and uh, not having them is kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. So um, maybe I don't know. Maybe we should move on to the next prompt. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, sure. So uh, how do you finish that prompt? Before I die, oh. I want. Oh, before I die, I want marijuana re- recreational marijuana to be legal everywhere because <laughs> i'm really sick of alcohol but you gotta get a buzz from something but mm-hmm. i'm not gonna unless it's legal i wouldn't do it but yeah boy i do miss that so what uh what about like i'm i'm because like i imagine in the 60s you were like this is gonna be the 10 years away it's gonna be like what like how do you how have you seen the progression up towards uh, not just decriminalization of marijuana but also uh, like the legalization of recreational marijuana? Oh, very sl- painfully slow. Yeah. Just yeah. Now we got Jeff Sessions who his mind's in some kind of I don't know. I, I mean, I would I don't know how long he's going to be around, but if he starts clashing with states that have where people have voted to legalize marijuana, that's it's going to be a bloodbath for the Republicans, and this is one of the issues. It's going to get people out to vote that normally don't vote, mm-hmm. because once they, you know, it's been legalized, and then they're going to try to take it away. Mm-hmm. Nah, that's, that's anyway. But that's, I'm being a little facetious. <laughs> Before I die, I would like to see this country back on a better track. Mm-hmm. What would that look like to you? Would that you- would be well. First of all, Democrats do way better than Republicans at governing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not never been one to take an interest in third parties, but um, so that's I think you know Democrats certainly aren't perfect, but they've definitely got the right ideas, and they believe that strong, effective government can make people's lives better. It's just mm-hmm. a basic d- different philosophy. So that's something I'd like to see. Um, you know, nobody's perfect, but. That would be a lot better. Mm-hmm. And what? Uh, I don't have any overarching vision of how things could become. I don't see a, you know, utopian. Any utopian scenarios where our problems are so ingrained. Mm-hmm. Climate change. Nobody knows. Really, no one knows what mm-hmm. the world's going to look like. And it's a lot of these future. problems are problems where mm-hmm. um, it's sort of like a, we're like like the culture as a whole is like an alcoholic that needs to hit some sort of rock bottom yeah. in order to enforce some change. And it's like when when a society hits rock bottom, a lot of people are unfortunately put through the meat grinder. That's true. Yes, you know, you, Eugene, you're very, very, very perceptive and wise, <laughs> <laughs> and this is very true. And I often think about it. You know. We don't, we don't know what rock bottom's like, but mm. I, I'm just hoping. And Howard and I, I mean, uh, we have not figured out what we're going to do. Um, both sets of parents lived, uh, were able to cash in their, you know, um, f- well, f- you know, it's better to be financially well off when you're facing old age. It truly mm. is. Mm-hmm. And they had the option of living in... Um, uh, continuing care communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, my parents in New Jersey and his in Maryland, but they were actually both from this uh, same like consortium of Quaker communities. I, none of them were Quakers, but the Quakers have been very proactive in s- setting these up. There's some around here. There's one down, uh, down around Lansdale, uh, North Wales, called Folkways, where my aunt lived. They, it's a, a concept where they have different kinds of housing. They have uh, garden apartments, and then they have uh, rooms for assisted living 
in a main facility and then end of the line nursing care. But once you buy in, then it'll be your home forever. And all four of our parents went through every stage from the apartment to the assisted living to the nursing home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just cannot. I mean, uh, we these were great places for our parents, but we just cannot wrap our minds around having to leave our home or do anything. So we're totally putting off thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, we're you know you're supposed to start thinking about it around our age, but we just no, we can't think mm-hmm. about it. It's we tough. don't know. It's tough, especially when you haven't. Uh, had like a, a one of those bouts of disability where it yeah. like really puts it into stark perspective That's like right. oh these are things that we need to be considering yeah. but it's it's tough when you don't if it's you know like we, we it's, it's on the back burner it's yeah. one of those things but we've seen we you know we have a lot of friends we know what kind of things can happen we look around anything can happen um but and i'm eventually going to need to get my knees replaced but mm-hmm. um but i'm putting that off uh, as far as I, you know, furthest down the road I can put it off, I'm going to keep putting it off. Mm-hmm. But, um, so yeah, we haven't, we don't really know. There's nothing, no option pleases us. We just want to stay here, but mm-hmm. sooner or later we're going to have to really grapple with it. But and it's, and he doesn't plan to stop working. And I, I could see that. I yeah, could see him said, just loving teaching and yeah, loving the clinic all yeah, the time. Yeah, he could be pulling in a paycheck when he's 80, which would be damn fine. <laughs> 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 that oh, would be great. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And uh, this, 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 like these issues about uh, around like the end of life and and the process of aging into towards death is one of the is it's a topic where uh, it's sort of like, it, it reminds me of like the commune discussion where it's like unless you have like we we have we as a culture have lost the ability to talk about end of life. Yeah, there, there's no there there are very few models that mm-hmm. like seem attractive or alluring like we see like oh okay the option is basically go to an eight like an assisted living facility and kind of wait out your life until you die and it's an unfortunate like that's the model we have and that's the only model that really exists popularly well the the continuing care community you have to have some money to buy in Mm -hmm. but they are very lively communities with many many activities Mm -hmm. and um People, if you get there young enough, you can build up a network of friends, mm-hmm, and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, it's depressing. Everything it about getting old and dying is depressing. Oh, you saw all four of our parents do it. Mm-hmm. All four of them basically died. You would say of old age. You know, systems failed, but it wasn't cancer or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. anything. You know, luckily, fortunately, none of them had anything terrible like Parkinson's. But they, um, Howard's mother became quite demented. Mm. Um, none of the others did, but they all went down, and we watched it. And there's not a pretty picture. No. But they were living in a place where they felt at home and cared about. Mm. And that's important. Yeah. And that that's... Was very, and it gave us a lot of freedom because we never lived very close. It was... Um, when The worst was when my parents... My father... My mother died, and then my father went through several years of decline and unhappiness, and he lived in Medford, New Jersey, and I was living in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and it was a horrible six-hour drive on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, mm. and I would try to go as often as I could, but it was so disruptive, and I had a business, and Howard just counted on me. He mm. was very good about it, but 
So it was, it was just a very difficult period. Mm-hmm. I just felt so torn. It's far better to live near your parents when they're old because it's, you're going to have to take care of them one way or another, and if you live nearby, it's easier. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's just the way, unless you are lucky and have a large, come from a large family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a friend who comes from a family of eight. Oh, wow. I think it's eight kids, and, or seven at least. And um, the mother lives out in Ohio, but one brother lives with her. Another sibling lives in the same town. And it's just uh, so marvelous for her. She goes out a lot, but there's people on the job. But very, you know, most of us don't come from big families. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, so. And it's, it's, sort of like, uh, it's sort of like cooking. It's nice to want to cook, but it's, it's a whole different proposition when you have to cook. Exactly. And, and it's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's right. nice to want to take care of your parents, but it's a whole different thing when you're talking about yeah. having to take care of them. And that's, I'd say this is one of the great things about being young is it seems so far off in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the day will come. And so at any rate, we watched it happen and... Um, we, what did we learn from it? That's um, hard to say. You just, mm-hmm. my father, Howard's father got really nutty. He became obsessed with the afterlife. He got really nutty, actually. Uh, Audrey was demented, but John was nuts. He obsessed about it. Um, he wanted to believe there was an afterlife. He basically didn't. He wanted someone to prove it to him that there was, but he rejected all proof mm-hmm. because he knew it was bogus. He was a man in torment. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's such. Yeah, he got that very sounds like nutty. that sounds like such uh, like grasping, like yeah, reaching and it was clawing. Very grasping and clawing. Howard's not like this at all. But um, my parents, my mother, just got very. She just faded away very gradually, mm-hmm. but. My father was stayed fairly clear in his mind, and he, and where he ended up, the was a nursing facility, but they put him in a basically what was a short term care unit because uh, they didn't have any other beds for a man. It's more women than men, and they they didn't want to put him in the dementia unit. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I would the people there were great. I would talk to them about it, and he was very clear in his mind and a really interesting thing happened a woman who worked there she was some kind of an aide she did something which was totally against the rules which was she was an evangelical christian and she couldn't believe my father wasn't a believer and so she would argue with him i'm sure it was fascinating for him because she was so interested in trying to get into his head and she told me she just couldn't understand it but he was so adamant and she, you know, it. she just couldn't believe it. He faced death, and he never backslid, mm-hmm. which to me makes sense, but to her it didn't. She thought, you know, he's got to start believing now that his death is imminent, but he never did. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I think it probably was entertaining for him. That she, <laughs> yeah, He got like and, a sparring partner. <laughs> yeah, right. And she told me about this, and I'm thinking, I'm sure this is against the rules, but I wasn't going to report her because mm-hmm. I, I thought it was great that she was that fascinated by him he was a very brilliant man mm-hmm. but at any rate they but they all eventually one after another they died and um so will we
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great transition. Let's talk about uh, how do you finish that prompt when I die, I want. Well, um, well first of all, um, both of my parents donated their bodies to be dissected mm-hmm. because the community had a, a um, relationship with the Rutgers Medical School mm-hmm. and Robert Wood Johnson. And so when they died, I wasn't there either time. They were whisked away. And it was a little creepy thinking about it, but mm-hmm. at any rate, by the time I die, I don't think anyone's going to be thinking about it. So when you don't have children, it's a whole different thing. That's the other thing. Since Howard and I have no children, it's like that affects very much your how you think about mm-hmm. the future, mm-hmm. your plans mm-hmm. for the future. We could leave our money to anything we want. Um, he, he does have um, two nieces. Well, I mean, there's a few offspring that we want to, you know... Foster. To, well, to yeah, have support. a bequest to, but mm-hmm. if we do accumulate a, a substantial estate, then we we haven't decided, but we could leave, you know, we could bequeath the bulk of it to some foundation or cause, but we, mm-hmm. you know, we haven't really... Worked, Done the work. No, like, figured, yeah. and, or, or even or gotten on the same page about it, but mm-hmm. then... That's something we might end up being in a position to do, which I would really love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to do that to have to leave something that was a scholarship. A, um, oh, I see. Yeah, you endow something that mm-hmm. would, you know, be like a let benefit. your ripple go a little further. Yeah, mm-hmm. because we're not in a situation where we have to leave the money to, uh, you know, the bulk of it to relatives. Mm-hmm, but at any rate, so I yeah I. Um, I would be happy to donate my body to science if that were in a situation where that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but And so after I die, okay, one other thing, and I don't know, if, we're very, if we get to be very old and we outlive everyone, this won't happen. But I have been to some wonderful memorial services. Mm-hmm. I've been to some awful ones, too. I'm sure. I went to a funeral. It was the body was there of an ancient cousin of Howard's mother. And it was the most awful thing. It was so impersonal. I don't think, no one there said a thing about her. I don't mm-hmm. think they, it was, they just had the old Episcopal service, which I kind of enjoyed because I remembered it. But it, they, there was nothing personal about it. But I've been to wonderful memorial services where people just told the most funny stories. And my I had an aunt and... We had we. She always seemed kind of mousy, but it turned out she had all kinds of friends and activities we didn't know about. And <laughs> people told these stories about her. It was the most wonderful. I've been to several uh, memorial services like that, mm-hmm. and so uh, that's I think the most anyone could hope for. But if you outlive everyone, then it's not going to happen. <laughs> but, <laughs> then so, no, yeah. but we're hoping that you know by the time we die, we'll have some sort of community. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If I, you know, I've known people who stayed active into their 90s, and, but mm. we just don't know. Mm-hmm. And so um, we think about it, but we, there's, we've drawn no conclusions. Mm-hmm. But I would, yeah, I would like to be in a position to leave some sort of legacy endowment, and it would be nice to have a, a fun memorial service. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's not a given because you have to have younger friends or, you know. Who can actually, like, carry it out, carry out that vision. Yeah, if you're all just, if you just, 
becomes decrepit and then you die. There's not going to be anyone around to to have hold that service. If you're mowed down at a younger age, the upside is. <laughs> yeah. Everyone <laughs> goes, you're There's who? an upside. Yeah, yeah, there's an upside and a downside to everything. Mm, that's very funny. So that's, that's what I think. But, you know, the world is, it's a little. It's wacky. It's wacky and, and disturbing. So we're just hoping that um, we can, the, the world will be able to cloak cope with climate change mm-hmm. constructively. It's not at mm-hmm. this point. It's not at all a given. Mm-hmm. I agree. And uh, what what do you? What's your prognosis? Like what do? You, uh, what is your like gut feeling? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you realistic? Or are you? What do? You, what word I'm, do you use? I'm basically op- an optimist by nature. Mm-hmm. I, just, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I can't really believe that it's all just going to go to hell and gone. Mm-hmm. So I'm an optimist by nature, but mm-hmm. intellectually. They were dealing with some very, I mean, inexorable forces mm-hmm. are in, of nature are at work. Mm-hmm. And it's a question. It's not. It's not a question of will the Earth survive climate change. The Earth has survived crazier things than we are doing yeah. right now. Too. It's going to be fine. Well, if, whether it's humans or our yeah. civilization, that's the that's the real question. Yes, and whether the, humans survive is yeah. But humans are kind of an invasive species mm-hmm. that have overrun everything. Yeah, we're in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> so this, when I went to the small group meeting with Charlie Dent, it was people that come to the Tuesdays with Toomey, and there's this lovely woman I've met who's a naturalist, mm-hmm. and she said, people were kind of stating what, you know, their um, cause, uh, that they, um, you know, people are involved in different causes. And Charlie Dent's a great listener. And um, she said, I'm the, I speak for little tiny, little small creatures, she said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Because these, the, you know, these, like these green, green living things, they have they they have they have needs and they have wants and oh, yeah. and they're they but they don't have a voice because they That's don't right. they don't think like us. We think like if we can make a tool, then you're intelligent. But if you're not, then you're dumb. And it's yeah. a very uh, very narrow focus for uh, for like for life and mm-hmm. and uh, to give those things voice is incredibly important. Yeah. What else uh, is there? Anything else you want after you die? Well. Um... Um, we work it well. We worry about our possessions. Uh, mm. We, you know, we've got wonderful. This is only part of our ceramic collection. I, I saw some of it in the other room. Yes, yeah. right. And um, but most of it's not by big name people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of actually, I've been reading about this a lot. Um, uh, you know, people in our age group, we've accumulated a lot of things, and people who have kids, the kids don't want them, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. don't even have kids. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, I'd love. Mm-hmm. I, I go to house, uh, I go to estate sales, and I've also, I used to, I've sort of stopped going to auctions, but auctions are viable. Um, I would just love our beautiful things to pass into the hands of people who'd appreciate them, but I, we don't really have much that would be, that a museum would take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just love them. I mean, we can't stop buying them. It's tough. You accumulate these things, you create memories around them and feelings around them. And it's a tough, it's like a very like anthropological sort of study. Like what, like when, if you were to like disappear or die, 
what what does your stuff tell you about like what does what what does your stuff what story does that tell yeah and it's like it i can i can tell a lot about you too like it's a and it's all very lovely things between the outside of this house between the inside of the house between the way you take care of this place and the way you were like i want to check the bathroom just to make sure it's tidy before you yeah. use it like it's all lovely and it's it like what what happens to your stuff after you're gone is a very weird question it's a very weird question yeah, because something's going to happen to it. Yeah, Some, something's going to happen to it. And like, whether, probably will have had to downsize by then. But yeah, I I don't know. I would just I'm I think an auction's the best. But yeah, that, yeah. but it's uh, tough. It's like, especially if you're yeah. alive when it happens. It's like you, there are um, people. They when we first moved here, there really weren't any businesses doing estate sales. But they've there have several have developed. I go to some of them. It's very depressing. You go to a house, and people are not necessarily dead. Sometimes they've just uh, moved somewhere else, but a lot of times it really kind of looks like they croaked because there's books about, like, you know, try to cure cancer with vitamins. I don't know. I mean, I look at the books. But you get get the anthropological look. Yeah, you get to see the range of the person's life and mm-hmm. people are just tromping through yeah it's so and, it's so impersonal yeah. it's just like yeah. a, it's like a it's like a it's like a bunch of uh like ravens yeah. just pecking away yeah it's have you just, ever been to a house sale yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, we, uh, down in florida like my parents live down there yeah uh, they're working down there and uh we've done we've done the estate sales things and it's just like this really yeah. weird like feeding frenzy yeah it's, it's like, very interesting yeah and it's like i and do, you see this whole you know you can see especially if you look at the books you can see so much about the person's life and the mm. phases they've been through. Yeah, it's... Uh, but, I mean, I just, you know, I give a lot of props to the people, it's mostly women that run these businesses. They have to go through and sort of inventory every single thing. And then they have to keep an eye on people. And mm. uh, and they... But this way, the possessions do get dispersed in a... Uh, in a way. In a way, yeah. yeah people yeah. that want the stuff... Get it. It's a very interesting because I, I didn't think about that. Like the person running this estate sale, they're probably in real realistically the only person other than the person that owned the things to have touched almost all of them. Yes, and, exactly. And that's such a weird, it weird is. connection with a person to very. touch everything that you own. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's like like they might not have touched this thing for thirty years mm-hmm. uh, since they were like when they were in good health and like had a different marriage, like all yeah. these things. It's like a totally, but like that you're that person that goes through it. It's a very odd. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So that could be what would happen, but more likely we'll at some point have to downsize. But no, I mean, I, it's easier for me to think 30 years out than to think 10 years out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not. We Yeah, we talk about it, but we have drawn no conclusions. It's tough, and it's but like... It's the fact that Howard, he works out a lot. Yeah. That's one reason he gave up playing the guitar, is he didn't really have time to do everything. So he's going to the gym a lot. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Just keep maintaining, keeping yeah. that health is such a is yeah. the name of the game. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've been talking for what, like an hour and a half now. Yeah, you're gonna have to edit this podcast. It's alright. Well, I've got lots of time for that <laughs> later. And uh, we, it's been a, it was been a lovely conversation. We've talked about all sorts of things, mm-hmm. uh, from your hippie days to your road trips to to reproductive rights and the climate and mm-hmm. all the. Or, I've loved it. It's been a really great conversation. Yeah. And. Uh, I hope that the audience thinks so as well. And so I want to give you the last few moments, last few minutes, whatever, however long you want to talk uh, to the audience, whether it's a young person who feels like they're a young hippie and they resonate very yeah. strongly with you, <laughs> or maybe it's uh, 
who knows just just somebody listening and just resonates with, with what you're saying like what uh, mm-hmm. what do you have to say to the audience okay. the is well yours. don't be like me <laughs> yeah because honestly I'm, when I say I have no resume I'm not kidding mm-hmm. and there's so many um, you know there's very few jobs I could really uh, qualify for and in fact even there's volunteer work I wouldn't qualify for because they want you to have some professional you know bona fides so don't be like me but um, but do gain as many basic physical skills as you can. Um, mm. Things you can do with your hands, mm-hmm. you know, uh, things you can make. I never really learned to sew. That was a big thing when I was growing up. But, you know, that, that would be a good skill to have. Just, you know, gain some skills. But I do feel that young people are amazing, the ones I've met, uh, that have... Um, I think um, they, the people that I've met through Howard, well, just the people I've met, they seem very well-rounded. I mean, I know they're slackers. I just don't ever meet them, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, read about them, but I, I never run into them. The people I meet are very wide awake, mm-hmm. and they don't really need my advice. But <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, but don't be like me. The kinds of stuff I've done, you couldn't really pull it off anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a great look into uh, like the the waves and the echoes of things, like mm-hmm. the 60s. It's like, maybe this is our 60s, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, who knows? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anyone can really accurately predict uh, this yeah. craziness of this like turmoil. Uh, but it's such an interesting time, and yeah. uh, for better and for worse. Yeah, and, and seek out the music that's a good soundtrack for you. A lot of the music I hear now is just horrible. But they they said that. My parents, you know, their age group said the same thing. Mm. I guess every generation says that. But some of it is awful. It's got no... No melody, no harmony. It's uh, <laughs> there's just some horrendous music out there. But there's also I know there's got to be good music. Mm-hmm. So uh, and you'll really appreciate that later in life uh, if you have this music that you really love, and then when you hear it, it just you it brings back memories, and it it's just helps. It really helps you with the rhythm of your day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm I'm sure there's some good music being written. There is. You just got to know where to look. Yeah, or you can, you know, do the oldies. There's <laughs> <laughs> plenty of good oldies. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. yeah, got to know where to look. I really wouldn't know where to look. But mm-hmm. the music is very, very fundamental. Yes, it is. And so, Lucy, I really appreciate this conversation. Um, I, I hope that the audience does as well. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah. This has been Lucy Horton on Death. Yeah. Thank you, Gary Hugger. Yeah.